Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, where we talk about the latest in financial literacy education. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, where we provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. You can find our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Please do rate and review us. And if you have any questions, you can get in touch with us at financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. Today I'm talking to Wanda Morris, CPA and Chief Advocacy Officer of CARP, Canada's largest advocacy group for older Canadians. Wanda, thanks for dropping by. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about CARP. Absolutely. So CARP is, uh, our mandate is to improve the lives and uphold the rights of older Canadians or Canadians as we age. Uh, and, and I uh, am particularly interested in the financial and consumer rights aspects of what we do. So I get quite involved in our, in our financial advocacy and making sure that, uh, that older Canadians in particular are, are treated fairly by businesses. Um, my colleague looks after uh, some of our, our more frail members who are perhaps at risk of elder abuse, not necessarily getting the right treatments from the healthcare system, or are burdened uh, as caregivers. Define for me a little bit who are the older Canadians that make up the CARP membership? So I would say that our, our stakeholders are twofold. So we have our members, 300,000 across the country from coast to coast, and they, um, I like to say, join CARP and you get to do good and do well. So do good by supporting our advocacy work and, and do well by accessing the, the benefits that many businesses want to provide to our members. But our members are also concerned about vulnerable Canadians. So while they're not necessarily our members, we also do advocacy work, for example, individuals in long-term care, for people at risk of elder abuse, and for vets. So within that group of older Canadians, I think it's artificial to call it a single demographic. It's not as if people at a certain age suddenly all share exactly the same concerns and needs. So within that kind of older Canadian stakeholder group, how do they divvy up and how do their needs vary? As we get older, what we find is that it's much less about your chronological age uh, and, and, and a lot more about your health and your attitudes. So I work you know, with many volunteers and we have uh, chapter leaders and executives in their 70s and 80s, and I come across members who are old in their 50s. One way that, that age has been characterized as the, the, the go-go, the slow-go, and the no-go years, and that's not a bad way to think about it. So what do you see in your work as the biggest financial issues that are facing Canadians as they age? Well, I think that the single biggest is the risk of individuals losing all or, or really a substantial part of their retirement livelihood. And whether that's a pension at risk, whether it's financial investments that are uh, not performing as they should, or in a really inappropriate high risk situation, or the risk of a fraud or a scam or abuse. And, and we talk about elder abuse, we differentiate that from frauds and scams and that elder abuse happens from someone in a position of trust. So a family member, say an adult child, a caregiver, um, someone from perhaps a religious community. I mean, we can you know, always stand back and objectively say, these are the big risks. 
do the membership see those as the, as the big risks as well? Or are they even aware or sensitive to some of these things that make them vulnerable? There's really two sides to this. So on the one hand, people would say, yes, you know, scams are a big problem. Frauds are a big problem. You know, nobody should lose their pension. On the other hand, people can be the subject or the target of a scam or can be, you know, paying egregiously high investment fees that are really eroding their investments without realizing that this thing on the one hand that they recognize as really dangerous, on the other hand, is actually happening to them. Right. That's really challenging. And how do they feel when they learn that? Do you, I, I mean, do you hear these stories that, that of things that have happened to people? Yeah, and, and one I'll share because uh, it happened to, to one of our CART members who's also a friend of mine and who's given me permission to talk about it and use her name. So her name's Trish. Uh, and she's in her 70s and she's still in her go-go years. You know, she's in a ski club. She's very active, lives in her own home. And she was working on her computer and she had a computer problem. She was you know, Googling, trying to sort out what was happening and this ad came up for a company that could solve her problem and it was exactly the problem that she was having so perfect uh, so she called them up and they solved the problem and I think it was like a couple of hundred dollars and she paid them and she was really happy and didn't think anything more about it and then a couple weeks later they called her back and um, they just wanted to make sure that everything was okay and was still working and then they told her oh you know our company's shutting down and we're losing our jobs and kind of as a final thing what we want to do is repay everyone the money that they gave us so can you give us your bank account number and we will repay you that $200 that you paid us and so you know as she says later and when she's talking to me I know better but at that moment remember this was a company that she sought out she googled she called her defenses weren't up. She wasn't thinking that this was a problem. She was thinking, oh, this poor, you know, these helpful people, and now they were going to lose their jobs. So she gave them her banking information, and she watched as they transferred, not the, the two or the $300 that um, she'd paid, but 3000 And then she went, oh, did, did you mean to do that? And they said, oh, no, we've done too much. Oh, no, now we're going to be really at risk. Can you pay us back? Well, of course. What do I I need to do they said well the best thing is to go to the post post office and get a money order and here's where you send it to and she was in line at the post office waiting to get that money order for three thousand dollars when the bank called and they said we've just noticed a really unusual transaction on your bank and you transferred three thousand from one account to another so they hadn't put money into her account when she'd gone online they had the ability to track her computer and she thought she they had put money in but really they just transferred money from one account to another and she was just about to send them three thousand dollars so it's a great story because it's got a happy ending but it also has some of those red flags that that is so critical for people to be aware of. So one, no legitimate business um, asks you to share your computer online. No legitimate business asks to be paid by a post office uh, money order, or you know, I think they'd also suggested that she pay them in Apple gift cards. You know, that's another real strong red flag to think about. So those are, are certainly two in that situation. And I think the other one and it's, it's, of course, so much harder 
if you feel that your your heartstrings are being pulled, if you feel like a real emotional connection, which is of course the thing that's impelling you to act, that should be the thing that's warning you that action might not be appropriate. And be aware that legitimate businesses do not need you to take instant action. And if something is going to go totally to hell in a handcart because you slept on it overnight, then that's one of the biggest signals that you should sleep on it overnight. Our listeners are the developers and the deliverers of financial education. What can you tell me about reaching out to older Canadians to get this kind of financial education into their hands? People don't necessarily want to be educated, but we like to be informed. People don't necessarily want financial literacy, but they want to know, will they have enough money saved for retirement? Are they at risk of being caught up by a fraud or scam? Is there a way for them to tell if their financial advisor is cheating them? So I think part of it is is the way that the learning and the literacy is framed. Uh, so that's critical. I know at CARP that our frauds and scam sessions are some of our most popular. So there clearly is an appetite for people to become informed. Uh, so it's, a, it's about putting our maybe a little bit less of our financial hats on and a bit more of our marketing hats on. What are the uh, things that engage people? One tool that individuals can use is something called Google Trends. And if people aren't familiar with it, it's, a, it's something that Google provides free of charge. You go into Google Trends and you put in um, several words or phrases and it will show you how those are searched. So if you put in frauds and scams and financial literacy and money, and you can tailor it to how are these searched in Canada, how are they searched in Western Canada, and see what are the phrases or words that are really resonating uh, with those in, in your demographic that you want to reach. I know that you have a number of outreach vehicles to your members. Um, you have a magazine, you have bi-weekly newsletters. How effective are these in reaching people? What kind of responses do you get and what resonates the most? So we have our CARP uh, organization, which is a not-for-profit, which is in the advocacy business and also provides benefits to our members. At CARP, we, we often use stories to reach people, and we use the vehicle of our, our magazine and other places to do that as well. In terms of a newsletter, we send out uh, regular information to our members. We have uh, email lists they can sign up for, for example, for our advocacy newsletter, and that's where I share information about our campaigns or things where we want people to reach out or get involved or just update them about uh, ongoing advocacy news. When we think about advocacy, you think about it as changing a system that's broken. For example, uh, we know that, that pensioners in Canada are really not protected. And when we compare them to pensioners in the US or the UK, it's, it's egregious how pensioners in Canada are at risk. So we want to fix that system. At the same time, we want to educate our members to say, okay, if you're in a broken system, here are still the things that you can do. For example, as a pensioner, you should be you know, demanding the statements for your pension and making sure that it's fully funded. And if it's not, starting to really get together with other pensioners and kick up a storm. So it's a combination of advocacy, how can we change the system, and education, what can you do for yourself within the system as it exists right now? So how does one inspire or encourage older Canadians to engage on these issues and then take that next step to self-protection. We have to engage them so that they badly want to make a change mm -hmm. and then we have to make the first step easy. 
So how do we get somebody to want to make a change? And I think we do that with story is a really big part. And we do it with relevance. So one of the, the, the very sad facts that we know is that one of the poorest groups of individuals in Canada is, is single senior women. Um, and sadly, one of the reasons why that often happens is that um, women outlive their spouses or their, their partners. There's also the whole gray divorce, but not thinking about that for a moment. So if you think about a couple living together, and as financial educators, we'll get this scenario where you have two people, so you have two incomes, two pension checks, two CPP checks, two OAS checks, and you know a lot of shared expenses. So a lot of fixed costs and then some incremental costs for each of the two partners. Now, imagine that one of the partners dies suddenly their OAS check is gone their pension check if they had one is reduced it's maybe you know maybe 60% of what it was their CPP is reduced maybe at 60% but if the surviving spouse had some CPP it would be less than that because you can never have more than maximum but the partner that survives still has the house, still has the, if it's a townhouse, they still have the strata costs, or otherwise they have the maintenance fees. They still, maybe the two are sharing a vehicle, so there's still the cost of the vehicle. It's not costing a whole lot less to cook for one person. So the expenses are nowhere near going down, but the income has dropped precipitously. And when you add into that mix the fact that the male partner is often the one who's been managing the finances and making the decisions, you can see where we're really ripe for and at risk for female poverty. So explaining that situation to men and saying it's not enough that you look after your wife by um, doing the finances for her, if you truly want her to be covered and be okay, it's critical that you are able to educate her. You know, there's two things. First of all, that you've got enough of a legacy, financial legacy for her to survive independently. And secondly, that she has enough information that she can make the right decision. So that's one thing. Creating the need, explaining it in a way that someone says, ah, they get that what's in it for me. I want to make that change because I love my wife and I don't want her to be in poverty after I go. Then the second piece of anything is how do we make this easy? So I think, yeah, I would love this. I would love my wife to know this, but oh my God, you know, she had a bad math teacher in school. She's always hated math. I love to play bridge. I love cards. I love numbers. Not her. She's been, you know, the social part of our family. How do I do this? So how do we explain things in a way where we don't shame or intimidate people, but we welcome them? And I think here we're, we are getting a lot more tools that are helping individuals. One of my personal favorites is a website called Better Money Choices. It's a tool specifically for retirees and near retirees. And it's put together by Doug Dahmer, who's a retirement navigator. And, and full disclosure, I, I love the program and he has given me a free lifetime membership to access it. But it's a way to, to look at your money and your choices that doesn't involve spreadsheets. Instead, it's got lovely little icons uh, and graphs. I mean, if you love numbers, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great website. If you don't love numbers, nevertheless, it's a way to go in and take a look at how your finances are without having to, you know, I think spreadsheets can be a, a pretty phobia-inducing document for people that, um, that don't like numbers and, frankly, are some of the folks that are most at risk. Are there any stereotypes that we may hold about 
Canadians as we age that are actually in fact not true, sort of myths of the aging and, and financial needs that you'd like to debunk a bit. Sure. Well, I, th I think the myths are the generalizations. We think things like, you know, older Canadians aren't good with technology. And certainly there are some older Canadians who would say you know, they're not fans of technology. But there are many that are, and I know a number on, among my acquaintance, you know, many individuals who manage their own finances, some who do their own trading. Um, not that I'm recommending that, uh, but you know, certainly many that do. One of the organizations I'm familiar with is a fintech firm. They're also called robo-advisors. Think of the, the, the wealth simples, the wealth bars, the nest wealths, this whole sort of genre of new companies that are filling the gap between the do-it-yourself investor who has the confidence and is willing to take the risks of managing their own money mm -hmm. and the people that are paying fairly high fees for an advisor. Those looking for a middle road are often uh, drawn to these fintechs or, or or sometimes called robo-firms. When they were created, they really went after millennials, thinking that would be their market. To their surprise, but not really to mine, they're finding that a lot of their clients are older Canadians. Because there are older Canadians, they're very comfortable with technology, and also are the ones who are really spending the time and in investing in their finances, and who really know the impact, um, which we all should, of high fees on our nest eggs. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about some of the risks that older Canadians are most vulnerable to because of that particular demographic? There's a number of, of elements we can talk about here, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple. I've recently just uh, been involved in some hearings before the CRTC on, on telecom companies and misleading and aggressive sales practices. And I was really drawn to participate in those as part of a coalition because of the risk to our members. Many older Canadians come from a culture that's very courteous and respectful. It's, you know, something, it's a really wonderful part of that generation. But in some cases, it makes them less able to be assertive. CARP has been involved in some work in Ontario in banning door-to-door -door sales. And it's a, a, just another slice of, of the same issue where an aggressive salesperson is trying to push a product and maybe a younger person would be comfortable just slamming the door in that person's face. But the older person, is they've asked the person to leave, they've said, get off the premises, the person doesn't go, what do they do? And they're they're find it really difficult to deal with that situation. Another thing is, is that uh, often, you know, as we get older, we get to our, from our go-go to our slow-go to our no-go years, we can, you know, be homebound uh, and sometimes socially isolated. So that having someone come to the door, someone call and have repeated conversations can be very welcome. And we may find ourselves offering financial incentives for the individual that really we may not otherwise do so kind of against our financial judgment because of our social isolation and and we hear situations of, of individuals being taken advantage of uh, because they're really trying to uh, address a larger issue which is is the fact that so many um, older Canadians are, are lonely and isolated 
other things about an older generation that make them um, particularly at risk? I mean, the reality is, uh, is that as we get older, we become less competent. And it happens at varying stages, uh, but it happens universally. So varying speeds, it'll hit us at various times, but, but universally, we will become less competent. And, and sadly, financial competence is one of the first things to go. Um, but while we're losing our competence, we're not losing our confidence. So this becomes a fairly toxic mix of being less capable, say, of managing our finances while having as much confidence as we've ever had in our ability to do it. And that's what um, makes us pray for unethical sales reps or advisors who uh, are really trying to further their own financial situation at our expense. That's something that I've seen firsthand when I've conducted focus groups with older Canadians, specifically with people about to retire or retired for, oh, I think, 10 years was the, that was the, the group that we were looking at. And we saw very clearly in those groups a couple of individuals who would really take over the conversation with absolute certainty. Uh, you need to do this, you can't do this. And they were wrong. The information that they were giving to the rest of the group was wrong. It, it was about tax and implications of things. You really saw that sort of disconnect between confidence and competence. And um, it can make it very challenging to support people to good decision making. We talked earlier about red flags, for example. The thing about red flags is they help you take an objective view of your own processes, right? They help you say, do I recognize myself in this? Are there red flags that, that older Canadians should be aware of? And are there red flags that the people who surround them and support them should be particularly aware of when it comes to financial matters? So one of the biggest risks that individuals have is the risk that they will take on investments that are too risky for their situation in life. So for example, let's imagine an 80-year-old teacher who worked in the private school system so doesn't have a pension but has a bit of a nest egg and wants to help out her children so she wants to get a certain amount of money out of her accounts. And so she meets with the financial advisor and you know, says, this is what I need. And the financial advisor looks at it and says, okay, 11%. And instead of saying, you know what, I, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but 11% is just not doable. At 82, it just doesn't make sense for you to take on the kind of risk that that would entail. You'd have no ability to recover if you'd lost half your assets. We have to look at pulling out and sharpening our pencil and looking at a much more reasonable return, four or five or six percent. And instead of that, the advisor saying 11%, well, we can go into real estate. And you know what? If you get a bank loan and you've paid off your house so it'll be easy for you to get another mortgage or for you to get a home equity line of credit, um, we can then double the amount that we're investing and then the interest that the, the return you'll get on that real estate investment will be much greater than what you're paying on the bank loan so you will get your 11%. Now, everything goes right. Certainly that is one possible outcome. But I know 
individuals who have investments in real estate ventures that never went anywhere, where the only person who profited was the advisor who immediately took 10% commission off the top as soon as they got the check. And now what you have is somebody with a home equity line of credit with their assets that are frozen, they're over 72, so they have to make RIF withdrawals every year, but their assets are frozen, so they're getting fines from CRA because they can't make the withdrawals that they're required to make. And this all happened because the advisor was reluctant to say no, to say you need to rethink that interest rate. So I think one of the risks that we have to face is when someone tells us something that is simply not realistic. Now, how do we know 11% isn't realistic? Another strategy, whether we're making any purchase, whether it's a long-distance phone plan, a cell phone, uh, investments, um, a retirement living, is to look at multiple options and ask questions. And, and I say this, if people are, are going to see a doctor, it's a good idea. Finance situations, it's the same thing. Take a friend, take an adult child. If you need to hire someone, hire someone and bring them along so that you can have two people to ask questions and to remember the answers and write them down. You mentioned the home equity line of credit. At CPA Canada, we've, we've done some work around that and particularly with focusing on homeowners um, younger that, who are still working, etc. But essentially, don't really understand that a home equity line of credit is not a bank account that you just make withdrawals from. And there's a huge risk that as people get to retirement, they're not paying off their mortgages at all because they have these big home equity lines of credit. Are the home equity lines of credit also a significant problem um, with older Canadians? They are, and, and we're seeing far more Canadians retire with debt. That, that wasn't a thing before. Uh, and, and banks love home equity lines of credit because while individuals will pay their mortgages and they will go into real financial hardship to make their mortgage payments, far beyond when they should, when they should actually be looking at other options like bankruptcy. But home equity lines of credit don't have that same, uh, let's say, sting to them. So where a bank makes money isn't lending you money that you pay off, but it's in lending you money where you make the interest payments and pay it sometime in the dim and distant future. And, and home equity lines of credit with their minimum payments often are a way to, to keep people into debt. Um, there's also, of course, the reverse mortgages, which are another situation. Now, I have nothing against a reverse mortgage or you know a similar situation might be deferring your property tax where that makes financial sense to do so. You know, and if you're a couple in your late 80s or 90s and you want to stay in your home, you're living in Vancouver or Toronto, it's increased significantly. You know, if you ever did move to a home, it would be to you know, retirement living where you'd pay by the month and you have tons of equity. Well then, you know, in that case, yes, take out a reverse mortgage and use some of that money to pay for things that you really need, like nursing care or, you know, some renovations to the home. Where I struggle is with individuals who are much younger doing so because a reverse mortgage, because it doesn't include ongoing interest payments, really increases substantially. Or people using debt to finance, uh, let's just call them discretionary purposes, 
when they're not doing so in the context of a financial plan. And when it might seem like a great idea to take the grandkids to Disneyland, but if you're doing that at the expense of being able to afford your medications or to afford the long-term care that you need, that's not a good financial plan. I think developing strategies to do that could be helpful. So what sort of things would you recommend? You know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking in my head, what do you do? And and part of it is, uh, so if we recognize that we're getting information from the person selling us, then carpe diem, and that's part of our name. Uh, but buyer beware. Really good to ask questions like, who's paying you, how much are you being paid? Because frankly, if you know the person selling you the life insurance policy is getting paid 10% of the total life value of that policy and what that amounts to in dollars, perhaps 20 or $30,000, that may uh, temper your enthusiasm to sign the life insurance policy. And it, not um, saying anything positive or negative about insurance, but it will help you make an informed decision. Now, by law, financial advisors are required to tell you how much they're being paid and what ways that the fees work, but often that is communicated by means of small print in a buried in a much, much longer document that you will miss. And and this is especially, I think, hard for an older generation where we want to be respectful. We want to be nice, but recognize that this is our money. And if it's not particularly nice to lose half of our investments or a quarter of our nest egg because we've paid egregious fees or brought products that we really didn't need. So so certainly asking questions, who pays you? How much do you get paid? And if you say, who pays you? And they say, you know, X person, well, I'm not paid by you. I'm paid by the mutual fund company. Well, who pays the mutual fund company? Because ultimately that comes out of the other fees that you are, are charged. Uh, so that's certainly one strategy for sure. So an, another critical piece is to go to independent professionals for advice. And that's why you know I love being a CPA and recommend if you have a relationship with one, it's a great resource, CPAs get numbers. Another really critical source of information is fee-for-service financial planners. So many financial planners uh, are paid by a percentage of the assets that they manage. And I think that's a model that certainly can work but offers some inherent conflicts of interest. A fee-for-service financial planner doesn't have them. That's why one of the reasons why, for example, I work with a fee-for-service financial planner, a woman by the name of Julia Chung, part of Spring Financial Planning, and every year I see her, we agree if it's time for a new financial plan. If it is, then I give her some money and she does that. And if not, we don't. But she gives me independent advice. So for example, if I'm looking to have someone help invest my assets, she can tell me, okay, here's some firms that will do it. These are, are you know, low cost firms. Here's what they offer. Here's why you might want this one or that one. Or here's why you might think about doing it yourself. She is prohibited and she doesn't get a referral fee from those organizations so I know I'm getting you know she's a certified financial planner so I'm getting advice and I'm getting neutral advice now I talked about the benefit of using a CPA a certified financial planner is another professional I highly recommend you speak with now 
interestingly, one of the questions we asked our members is if they worked with a planner and if they did, was it a certified financial planner? And I remember this so well because a huge percentage of our members said that they worked with a certified financial planner. In fact, you know, more than there are certified financial planners in Canada. So one of the other things to do is to check. So you can ask your financial planner, you know, what are their credentials? Because I can tell you that the credentials vary from a course you can learn in a weekend to one that takes a university degree or equivalent and, you know, additional years of study. There's also a website where you can check uh, the Financial Planners of Canada. Um, so take a look and they list everybody who um, who has their credentials. So that's, that's certainly um, a place to look. Another one is um, Money Coaches Canada. They have a number of their folks are, are certified financial planners. They also have some folks with other credentials, more who work on the, the debt containment side of things, budgeting side, but working with somebody who you pay by the hour and while it you might think, oh, but my financial advisor doesn't charge me. Uh, and I'm reminded of the story of this woman who came to me and said, oh, I'm such a lovely young man as my financial advisor. Such a shame I don't pay him. Yes, you do. Uh, you are paying your financial advisors and you are paying a lot. So often, uh, many situations, you'd be better off to pay and it might be the same annual fee for a financial plan as you would pay for a financial advisor but you likely don't need a new plan every year so not only will you be getting great independent advice but you might actually be getting it cheaper than what you're paying for. Yes the question that we encourage people to ask is of a, of a financial planning advisor is who's their fiduciary responsibility to? So do, are they responsible to do what's best for me? Um, is that they're, they're you know, and, and so when you talk about a certified financial planner, for example, their fiduciary responsibility is to the client, not to make money for themselves. It's to make the best decision. Um, so I think that's a really important point to understand how people are paid, which is not to say that there aren't, you know, wonderful advisors in all different parts of that, you know, that world of advisors. But the important thing is know what questions to ask and be comfortable with their answers. Um, you may still opt to with a particular planner or whatever, and that's fine. But when you've asked the questions and you know the answers, that's, that's the empowering thing, I think. So important. And I think one of the things we've talked about here is, is red flags to look for. A financial advisor who belittles you or who makes you feel that your questions are, are inappropriate or irrelevant or uninformed is a red flag. You want a financial advisor who will take the time to listen to your questions, to answer them, and if they give you an answer that's different than what you thought, to explain so that you understand why what they're saying makes sense. Is there any other things you'd like to add? Any other thoughts? Maybe just to recap a few things. If I was in front of a room training people about finances, there's a, a few things that I would keep in mind. Number one, that radio station. What's in it for me? So always putting things into the perspective of what does the person want to learn? Um, number two, using language. So framing things in a way that honored the individual and made them interesting to the person. Number three, using story. So as much as we might want to tell people facts and figures, if we want to change people's hearts, we don't do it through logic and reason. We might think that we make decisions through logic and reason, but studies are very clear. 
people make decisions when they are emotionally and the way to to reach people emotionally is through their hearts and the way to reach people through their hearts is by story so we engage people through story and then we can give them the facts and figures after that so what's in it for me think about the person's point of view language that frames it honors the individual and then the use of story and if I have a fourth point here I would say as much as we might want individuals to remember 10 really important things if we give them 10 they'll remember none so give them three maybe a bonus one at the end thank you so much and that's wonderful advice I've been speaking with Wanda Morris from CARP you can get more information on CARP and the resources that Wanda's been sharing with us from our website. Wanda, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is an issue that's clearly near and dear to my heart. And the more people that we can reach out and empower, the better. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Mm-hmm.